Well, we're going to be uh, returning to our study of Jude. If you've been away from us for a while, you might be going, what happened to John? Uh, you might remember we, we sort of, yeah, I guess we could call this our late summer study, but we sort of jumped out of John for a few weeks to go into Jude, uh, really based off of uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he prayed for unity in the church, and as the questions come up from that, what, what, what are the things we should be unified about? What are the things that we should stand for? And what are the things we should contend for? Well, a natural place for me to go to would be Jude. And so we've jumped into Jude, where uh, Jude is writing for that very reason, encouraging us to contend for the faith, to contend for the faith, to, to struggle uh, vigorously and continuously for the faith. Um, and if you remember, this is a warning letter, and it is a warning letter to you, to the church, to those who are part of the um, invisible, universal church, the people that are truly redeemed, that make up the true household of God. Jude intros this letter that it's to the called and the sanctified and preserved, so that's to the church. And it's a warning about what? It is a warning about apostates. In verse 4, he says, there are certain men who have crept in unnoticed. Uh, apostates are those who would identify themselves with the faith in some way, but they're not really part of the true faith, or they have defected from it. That's the definition, really, of an apostate. And so Jude is warning the church that those people are now among them. And now when I say um, among the church, I mean the visible church. All that would sort of fall under the umbrella of Christianity or Christendom. These people hide midst believers and unbelievers alike, but those who would say they are Christian, they are apostates, they have crept in. And so he's warning the church, be on their guard, fight for the faith, because as Peter says, they want to spread destructive heresies. But also, it's a warning to apostates. It's a warning to apostates. Uh, the last study, which was two weeks ago now, because ba Pastor Brad Hain shared from Acts last week, but Jude gave us three examples from real history, from the Old Testament, how God will always deal with apostates. In verse 4, he says, Certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. God condemns the apostates. It's a severe penalty for those who would masquerade as the faith because he wants the faith to be true and clear and pure. And so these people come in and pretend to be of the faith and are not truly of the faith. God has marked them out for condemnation. And how do we know this? Well, Jude gives us three examples from history. And I'm just going to recap these because it's very important going into today's verses. In verse 5, he gives us an example of apostate Israelites, you might remember. This is our, from our first study quite a few weeks back now. These are the Israelites that God redeemed. He redeemed out of slavery to Egypt, right? Took them through the wilderness, provided for them, brought them to the promised land. Um, and all the while, they grumbled, they complained, they rebelled at every opportunity. They built themselves a golden calf and worshiped. And the final straw was, here's the promised land. Yeah, we don't want to go into it. You remember that? And so God said, that's it. I'm going to let these people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And he killed them. And it was their children that inhabited the land. And so verse 5 tells us that afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. 
which is very interesting, right? Because these are the very people that saw the power of God at work, right? The God who did all those amazing uh, miracles, the God who brought all those uh, judgments upon Egypt. These people saw that. So they believe there's a God. They know there's a God. They don't believe in him. They don't trust in him. They chose not to accept him as their God. They chose to rebel. They chose not to humble themselves, to submit themselves to him, and so God destroyed them. Those were the apostate Israelites. And then in our last study, we looked at verses 6 and 7. We took the whole study to look at those two. Verse 6 was very strange. You might remember it. The example is apostate angels. And certainly the angels are apostate because they dwelt in the very presence of God, and then they rebelled against God under the leadership of Satan, right? They rebelled against God. They were kicked out of heaven, The verse says they did not keep their proper domain. They left the sphere of their uh, influence, right? The, The presence of God. They were kicked out of that area. But also, they left their own abode. Very interesting. They, some of these angels descended to the point where they came down and indwelt sinful men, cohabitated with women, and produced an ungodly offspring. And so God was so repulsed by their sin, those particular angels who went that far, he chained them up forever. Look, he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They're just chained away in darkness awaiting judgment. That's a pretty severe uh, punishment, wouldn't you agree? And we looked into the verses that show us demons do not want to go there. Jesus ran into those demons. Remember Legion? The, the demonic at, uh, demoniac at Gadara, right? What's your name? Legion, because there's many of us. Don't send us into the abyss, they claimed, right? Send us into the swine instead. This is a very real place. And angels from the beginning have been incarcerated just awaiting uh, judgment because they left their natural place of existence, their own abode, spiritual beings, and inhabited and took on physical form of men and slept with women, and it produced an ungodly offspring. But verse 7 gives us a very strange example of a reversal of that. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember the story. Two angels go into Sodom to warn them, to warn Lot, actually, and his family of the judgment to come, and all the men of the city come out because they want to have sexual relations with the angels. So the angels come down and want that with humans, and now the humans want that with angels. Do you see? Very, very peculiar, very strange, but it exhibited the sinful behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were given over to sexual immorality, and we looked at that, and they went after strange flesh. So that's what we've covered up to this point. We're going to start in verse 8 today and go through verse 11, and that's a lot because there's a ton in there, so I'm hoping to get through it all today. So let's look at these verses 8 through 11. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let's pray. 
God in heaven, we once again need your power and the presence of your Holy Spirit as we open up your word, God. We pray that you would reveal truth to us, illuminate scripture that we might understand what we are reading today. There's difficult things in this passage, Lord, and we just want to know and understand them better that we might glorify you. So be with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I did that lengthy recap because it's important. In verse 8, you see the word likewise, right? So you've got to know what he's talking about. Likewise, meaning in the same way. Same way as what? Well, same way, in the same way as the examples above in verses 5, 6, and 7, that those examples exhibit for us ungodly behavior, the wicked behavior of, of these men, these dreamers he's calling them, is ungodly. So we're coming back to the, the men he's mentioned back in verse 4, the certain men that have crept in unnoticed, okay? We're back to them. Likewise, also, these dreamers. This is a very interesting word. It's a long one. It's enupniazomai. Try that one three times fast. Enupniazomai. Um, and it's only used a couple of times here in the New Testament, here and in Acts chapter uh, 2. But it means to be d- beguiled to be beguiled by sensual images that would sort of carry one away into immoral conduct. And it's only used one other place, and I want to show you. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's um, the, the, the sermon from Peter here in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. And he, he uses the same word, but he uses it to quote uh, what Joel says in Joel uh, chapter 2 verse uh, 28. But in Acts chapter 2, he's sort of trying to explain what the people are seeing. Remember, um, they're speaking in languages, prophesying, uh, proclaiming. Um, And so here in verse 16, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's explaining what, what they're seeing. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. There it is in the Greek, enupniazomai, dream dreams. Now, Joel's prophecy that's reiterated here in Acts and Peter's sermon really kind of show us that the, the dreams that are in mind here might more be revelatory dreams, not just your normal everyday dream, right? Not the dream you normally have when you go to bed and usually is weird anyway, right? Because you ate something bizarre. (laughs) But revelatory dreams. These are dreamers. And in the Old Testament, dreamer was virtually synonymous with a false prophet. Do you remember the false prophets that were called dreamers? I need to take you there. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 13, because I just want you to see how important... um, or really how severe God uh, uh, felt about those who would sort of prophesy in his name falsely. It's in Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, there it is, okay, a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. 
you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. Pretty severe, right? These are men who claim to have the word of God, claim to prophesy in his name, And he says, did you notice, even if he declares a wonder or a sign and that thing comes to pass, okay, so this amazing miracle takes place, yet he has prophesied in some way that you are to leave the way of God, to go away from his truth and away from his word, you shouldn't listen to him, even if the thing came to pass, because he's clearly a false teacher. Sadly, today, many are still swayed by the dreamers today. And that's what Jude is warning us about. These dreamers, they are not hearing from God. They're coming out with things that originate in their own imagination, from their own fancy. Jeremiah says this about them in Jeremiah 23. I have the verse for you, verses 25 to 27. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. So you see that. They are really prophesying out of the deceit of their own heart. The deceit of their own heart. It's their own imaginations. And they are dreamers. And Colossians warns us about this. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward. (laughs) Cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. It's a mind that really is in the flesh. The spirit has nothing to do with it. And you'll see that. In in the, the ESV, in that verse, translates it this way, um, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. I like the CSB as well. It says, claiming access to a visionary realm. You ever heard things like that? I have access. I have, God has shown me a new truth. I have access to this new divine word. Okay, those are dreamers. <laughs> And they're going to um, be revealed by their character traits. And that's what he's going to give us here today. The characteristics of their nature are clear. He says, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So keep it in context. Likewise, so just like uh, the examples above, these dreamers do the same. They defile the flesh, which which certainly is, is evidenced from what we read up there reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Let's look at the first. They defile the flesh. That speaks of their immorality, right? Their immorality. They are polluting the body. And if you remember, I told you that Second Peter chapter, well, all of Second Peter and Jude very closely correlate, right? Um, if you're going to study Jude, you've got to study Second Peter and vice versa. And so let's look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10. What he says about this, he says, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness 
and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Do you see how closely uh, that verse relates to the one in Jude? Very closely, right? But he says, they walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. They pollute the body. Why is that a common characteristic amongst those kinds of people, right? They look good for a while, but ultimately you find out there's been some kind of affair going on, something hidden that they've been doing. Why is that ultimately a character trait? They don't have the spirit to restrain the flesh. They're trying to restrain the flesh with the flesh, but they don't have the spirit in them to restrain the flesh. You need the spirit to restrain the flesh. You don't have the power or ability to do that on your own. And Jude will actually say that later on in verse 19. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. And so ultimately, lust will consume them. They'll give in to the flesh because they have no ability to restrain that. That is a character trait of a dreamer. They defile the flesh. It speaks of their immorality. But 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells this to the Thessalonian church, chapter 4, verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Believers, we should know how to do that. We should know why. The Spirit does what? Testifies to the truth, right? Illuminates truth, reveals truth, but also gives you the power to uphold that truth to restrain the flesh. But if they don't have the spirit, then they're just in the passion of lust. They've given themselves over to that, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And certainly defiling of flesh goes along with the examples of the angels and the sodomites given to us up above in those verses who gave themselves over to sexual immorality. But if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can restrain that. But they give themselves over to those things because they are devoid of the Holy Spirit. The second character trait is they reject authority. They reject authority. That speaks of their insubordination. Authority is the word kuriates, kuriates. And it's the word for lordship, which makes total sense, doesn't it? If you haven't made God your God, you haven't made Jesus your Lord, if you haven't declared him to be Lord over your life, over your body, over your mind, your thoughts, your actions, everything then of course you're going to defile the flesh, right? You're going to live for yourself. You're going to live for what you want to live for, just like we see with the angels and the Israelites, right? The Israelites had God as their God. He led them through um, the desert there. He provided for them, but did they reject his authority or accept it? They rejected it, right? So just like those examples, these dreamers are characterized by a defiling of the flesh, which goes in tow with rejecting authority, obviously, because God is not really God of their lives. They haven't made Jesus lordship. Those two are pretty cut and dry, but the third one here is a little weird. And the third character, characteristic here is they speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil as is blasphemeo, which is where we get our word blaspheme or revile. That's a simple one. But dignitaries is the word doxa. Doxa. It's the where we get our, our word doxology from. Our Thursday night Bible study with the men, we ended the evening with singing the doxology as a group. It was beautiful. You're all enlisted in the choir now, men's choir. All right. 
But praise God, from whom all blessings flow, right? It's It's a wonderful doxology. But doxa here isn't translated that way. It's translated in all kinds of ways, angelic majesties. Um, Some translations say slander or blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, you remember a couple weeks ago in Brad's teaching on the hermeneutics, how many of you came to the Wednesday, Thursday Bible studies on hermeneutics? A few of you, one of you, two of you. Right. It was about how to study the Bible, right? Do you remember some of the things you're looking for? You're looking for contrasts. You're looking for comparisons, things like that. Uh, Repetition things, things like that. You're looking for verbs. Verbs are very important. But there was one thing he listed. He said, one thing you want to look for are oddities, right? Unfamiliar words in, in, or familiar words in unfamiliar ways, right? Things that are kind of weird. This is one of those. Here's an oddity. There you go. This is an oddity. Because doxa is translated as glorious ones, angelic majesties, celestial beings. Look up all the translations. But the word could be interpreted as a reference to God's majesty. So why do all the translators use something to do with angels when they translate this? How do we know Jude is actually talking about angels? Well, 2 Peter helps us. Remember how they go together? You've got to read 2 Peter. So turn there real quick at 2 Peter chapter 2. It's in the middle of verse 10, but I'll just start at the beginning of verse 10, but there you'll see it, and it goes on into verse 11. It's the same kind of description he's giving in terms of these dreamers. 2 Peter 2, verse 10, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. So there's the same phrase, but he goes on, verse 11. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Very interesting, right? What's he saying here? So the dreamers, they're presumptuous, they're self-willed, right? He's talking about the same things Jude is talking about. Um, And they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, angels, right? Angelic beings um, are greater in power and might than humans, right? They won't even bring a reviling accusation against another angelic being. That's what he's saying. Jude picks up on that, and he's our other example of why we know he's talking about angels, because he goes on to give us a massive example with Michael the archangel. But what is this talking about here? We're talking about human beings, dreamers, speaking evil of angels. How so? How have you heard that today? I'll give you you one common one, and I, I want you to stick with me and not be offended. Because, because I say that you've said this, I'm not saying you're an apostate. What happens is these terms get absorbed into our Christianese, and we repeat them. I'm going to share with you something you should never repeat, and if you have, you can repent of it and don't say it again. <laughs> have you heard, we bind you, Satan? Yeah. Satan, I rebuke you. Satan, this is what I'm talking about. And if you've gone there, hey, again, it's just because maybe you were in a church where you were told that, or you heard that, or you said that, you've just absorbed it, it's okay. But what I'm trying to tell you is, that is coming from false teaching. The reason is here. You have no power or authority over angelic beings. You don't. You're not greater in power than them. And so what Jude is saying, these dreamers are the kind that get out there, and you see them on television all the time, right? We've got a new word that we can say. We bind you, Satan. That's great. 
can you just keep him bound and stop letting him loose already? Because if you've got to keep binding him, right, we bind you. And then apparently they unbind him, and he's back at it again. I'm like, just hold on to him for Pete's sake, right? Remember the sons of Sceva, right? right? These guys thought, it's like, oh, we can go rebuke Satan. We can go, and the demon jumped on them and said, well, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? And he beat them to a pulp, right? We have to be very, very careful when we're talking about powers greater than we and uh, powers that we don't understand, angelic beings. Let me start at the beginning here. What's the big deal about this? Well, the angels, they have had a special role in establishing God's moral order, specifically the coming of the moral order, which is the Ten Commandments. You look at Deuteronomy 33. I have it up on the screen for you. This is at the... uh, when the children of Israel are about to inherit the land, remember the, uh, the originals have all died, the apostate Israelites. It's their children, their offspring that are going to inherit the land. And so sort of everything is being recapped in Deuteronomy here. And in verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 1, it says this, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai, and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. You'd see that. So he came with ten thousands of his saints, angelic beings. And it's confirmed in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. This is Stephen the martyr's speech. And he says, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Remember, he's condemning them for having the law, and they hadn't kept it, but he says, but it was received with the angels. And in Galatians 3.19, Paul speaks of it again. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. I know when we go and read the Old Testament, the angels aren't necessarily highlighted there. But Scripture is Scripture, and it tells us the angels are part of that. They had a part of establishing God's moral order, and they're going to have a part in the judgment of the wicked. And Jude is going to talk about that. I'm going to give you a preview of next week, but just look at Jude 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You think he overused ungodly. (laughs) He's speaking, though, about the judgment upon the ungodly at the hands of the angels. And here's my point. The angels have this major role in establishing God's law and his moral order. They have a major role in the judgment, and so they should be respected, is my point. False teachers, apostates, assume a power. They assume an influence over angelic beings that they just don't have. And to further demonstrate the seriousness of this, Jude is going to contrast their behavior, the behavior of these dreamers, with the behavior of Michael the archangel. Can you think of a more powerful angel? Just Satan. Michael is the most powerful angel of God. He's the protector of God's people. And look what he says about him in verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
That's Michael. And you guys met him in Daniel chapter 10 when we went through the Daniel study. Do you, do you remember an angel uh, was um, held back by a demonic being, the prince of Persia? He said it withstood him 21 days. Otherwise, he would have been there earlier to give, to give Daniel this vision. He had to enlist the help of Michael, right, to come and withstand him. Apparently, he didn't learn the I bind you Satan phrase because he could have got out of that really quick. I could have saved himself 21 days. Oh, I forgot about that. An angelic, you know, battle 101. I bind you, Satan. No, he needed Michael. And Michael had to come and help him contend there and defeat the demonic being. And here, in our example in Jude, Michael is battling or contending with the devil. The devil. Now, this word is not the contending word we saw in verse 3. Remember, contend was apagonizomai. It's a different word used here, and it means to oppose. He opposed him. So he opposed Satan, <clears throat> the devil, and he disputed or argued about the body of Moses. But he, did you notice what he did not do? Those are the two things he did do, but what he didn't do was bring a reviling accusation against him. And said, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, why does Michael, the archangel, why does he do that? Where does he get that example for, from? I want to take you to one. And it's in Zechariah chapter 3. I do have it for you, but you can turn there if you'd like to see it, because this is a pretty amazing example. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, this is a vision. Okay, this is a vision given to Zechariah, and in the vision, he sees Joshua the high priest. Now, Joshua, you've got to give you the time frame here, is the one that led the people of Israel out of captivity to Babylon. Okay, so we're way, we're way forward here in time, okay? He led them along with Zerubbabel. He led them out of captivity to Babylon, in Babylon um, to, back to the promised uh, land, and they were going to rebuild the temple and all that. So it's that Joshua. Joshua the high priest is standing there. He's standing next to, before, sorry, before, the angel of the Lord. Now, I'm going to submit to you, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel of the Lord we see in the Old Testament is often Jesus. I'm going to tell you why even further in a minute. And Satan is standing there with him. He's ready to oppose him. And I think what Satan's going to oppose is here they're coming out of slavery and say, well, God, break your covenant promises with these filthy people because they just keep sinning, right? Break your covenant with them. They're not worth it. He's going to oppose them. He's the accuser of the brethren, is he not? So he's going to accuse them. Now, this is Jesus standing there, okay? Satan's there, and he accuses them, and it says this, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> Did you notice that? The angel of the Lord said to the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. I'm going to say it this way. Jesus, the son, said to God, the father, right? God, the father rebuke you, Satan. He submitted even that to God, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't even do that himself. And it goes on because we see what side God chose in verse 3. Did he listen to Satan? Did he listen to Jesus? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. He's sinful. He is sinful. Satan's right about that. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Clothe them in righteousness, right? 
I, I've forgiven their sins. He doesn't listen to Satan. He listens to his son who says, the Lord rebuke you. And when we hear the Lord rebuke you, that seems to be the end for Satan. It was for Satan when he contended with Michael here because you don't hear any more about him. Michael's response here in verse 9 anticipated the response of the angel of the Lord Jesus. So what about the whole body of Moses thing? I know you're not listening to anything else I've said. You've just been going like, oh, body of Moses, body of Moses. You're waiting to get there. Well, there's only one place that talks about the body of Moses. It's Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 to 6. I should have it up here for you. It says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. That's what we know. So Moses died, he was buried, and we don't know where he was buried. But from Jude, we get this. Michael was the one that was assigned with the task to bury his body in an unknown place. And I know the questions are, but why? Why does Satan want the body? Well, I don't know, because my Bible doesn't say it. Does yours? Doesn't tell me, right? I could hazard a guess. I would probably say that God did not want Moses' body dug up because we would venerate it like we do all the other things we find. Oh, mother, you know, Mary's milk and Peter's bones, and we'll find something to worship in place of God. Why does Satan want the body? Well, again, I don't know, but I could hazard a guess. Maybe he would want to inhabit that body, impersonate Moses, lead people astray. Who knows? doesn't really matter. The point is, uh, really, what, what the point is of this whole thing is that even Michael, the archangel, in contending over that body, recognized that he did not have power. He did not possess sovereign dominion over Satan. He didn't possess a greater power than Satan. He didn't outrank him. Instead, he just called for the Lord to rebuke him. Yet we have people running around today saying, the Lord rebuke you. Angels don't even do that. False teachers exercise no restraint. They pretend to have personal power over Satan and, and, and power over uh, angelic beings. And I'm sure for some, a little bit of cash, they'd help you with that. <laughs> but they really revile things they don't understand. And that really leads us into verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. They really don't understand. They don't understand how that realm works. We don't. And they speak evil of things they don't really know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves, verse 10 goes on to say. Brute beasts, alogos, it means unreasoning. <laughs> so they're unreasoning animals. Jude likens them to unreasoning animals that operate only on instinct, right? Whatever they know naturally, they speak evil of what they don't know because they have no spirit. And they can't fully understand spiritual things. They can't soundly interpret the truth of special revelation. So they're just like going on instinct, you know, naturally doing whatever comes to their mind. Remember going back to the dreamers, you know, whatever they can imagine, whatever they can come up. And they deceive many. They deceive many. In, in, in Peter's version, in 2 Peter 2.12, he says this, But these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. A very similar saying, he says, but he goes on to say they're going to perish. They're going to perish because they're acting corruptly. So this is quite severe, isn't it? And this is, none of these things are unfamiliar to us today. We see some semblance of these things. 
I mean, I do. You just turn on the TV. You can see some of these things in televangelists, um, them out there just, just proclaiming whatever they want to proclaim. I, I saw one that, that, that said the image of Jesus appeared on the wall in the, in the sanctuary, and as he opened and moved his mouth, so did Jesus move his mouth. He was speaking the very words of Jesus. And I even caught it on tape. We have it. Well, no one found that tape. They've been asked for that tape. It doesn't exist because he's created it. It's a, out of his own imagination, his own fancy. And they deceive a lot of people. And so we have to be careful. That's why this is a warning. And so we're going to move into a correlation here. He's going to close in verse 11 with a correlation to past apostates. Apostates of the past that were really closely linked to this. And here's what I want you to recognize when you read verse 11. I want you to see the progression that's in this verse. Okay, look at the, look at the progression here. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Do you see that? They've gone, they've run greedily, and then they've perished. There's this progression that apostates will take and ultimately ends in perishing. Now let's take each of these in turn. They've gone in the way of Cain. Let's go back to Genesis 4. We've got to see about Cain. You all know Cain. He's the first human being ever born. Cain, son of Adam and Eve. What's the deal with Cain? Well, we all know he murdered his brother, but there's something more there. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So here we have Cain. Cain brings an offering to the Lord of fruit, vegetables. Abel brings an offering of an animal, right? And Abel's is accepted and Cain's isn't, and so Cain gets angry. And God talks to him about it, but where it ends is really with him murdering his brother, right? That's where it leads to. There's a progression even in Cain's behavior. But here you have just one man with one um, example. What's really going on here? Well, when you read Genesis 4, it presupposes something. It presupposes that God, if, he's, if, if, if they've brought an offering, that at some point has, has instructed them how to bring an offering, right? That they would know what would be an acceptable offering. God would be a monster otherwise if we just had to guess what would please him, right? Oh, I don't know. What, what, do you, what should we do to please God? I don't know. I'm going to bring him some vegetables. Hey, good idea. I'll bring it. You know, that's not what happened. God had to instruct them as to what would be acceptable. And what he needed to bring was blood, a blood offering, just like we see through the Old Testament. But, but Cain doesn't do that. He brings um, what he's good at. He brings his fruits and his vegetables and those things. And God doesn't accept that because that's not the instruction that he was given. That is what we see today 
People want to come to God under their own terms. They want to create their own way to him. And so his works were ultimately evil, and other scriptures support that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we find out, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So faith, by faith, he offered to God what was more excellent. It was the accepted sacrifice, the offering, and he was considered righteous by his works. The assumption then is Cain wasn't. But also, 1 John 3.12 tells us that. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Notice it doesn't tell us that the act of murdering was evil. Obviously it is, right? It says, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. What, what Abel offered was a righteous act. What Cain offered was an evil one. His, his work was evil. And so he was angry, he was jealous, and he murdered his brother. What is Cain? Cain is the prototype apostate. He is the prototype apostate. The prototype false religion right? God has made clear what he wants. I don't want to give that to him. I'm going to come to him in the way I choose, in the manner that I dictate. And listen, we, we cannot come to God under our own terms. You wouldn't want to, because let me just tell you, you will mess it up. But when we come to him under our own terms, right, we really, we really have a difficult time. But when we give it to him and say, I, I will submit to you, 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 I'll give you lordship, right? You rule my life. Boy, we find blessing, Boy, we find fulfillment in life. But Cain was angry. And, and, and God's trying to tell him, listen, you're, you're continuing down this road. This is where this is going to lead. Sin is going to just consume you. And it did. And it led to murder. And so he's just one man. And it just shows the influence um, this one man has and what it led in his life. It led to an act of murder. But Jude gives us another example not just Cain. He says, they've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Now here, Jude really gives us the fundamental motive behind why these people are even involved in church to begin with, right? Don't you wonder if they're not really following the faith, why do they stay involved anyway? Well, here's their motive. Greed. It's greed. Money. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for money. Now there's too much in uh, Numbers 22 to 24, because <laughs> that's where Balaam's story is covered. But you can turn there because we're going to look at one part of it. Um, Balaam it encompasses a lot, but let me just tell you a brief recap of what's taking place. The children of Israel have entered the promised, well, they're starting to enter the promised land. They're starting to take control. They've defeated King Og. They've come into the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab is Balak, and he sees them like a multitude out there, and he's freaking out. He's worried about these guys. So he goes to the one man he knows that might be able to do something about it. It's, it's Balaam. Balaam is a known prophet for hire. That's why he goes to him. Balaam's work is, you give me money, I'll give you the curse, I'll give you the blessing, I'll give you whatever you want. It's just going to come at a price, okay? So Balaam is a prophet for hire. Don't get confused with the bees. Balak is the king of the Moab, a Moabite. So he goes to, uh, well, he sends some people to Balaam to say, I want you to come and curse these people for me. And when you read Numbers 22 to 24, you kind of come out with like, maybe he's an okay guy because he says some things that are pretty right on. He does seem to like, well, I, I can only come and speak what the Lord gives me to say, right? I can only do that. 
Yeah, that's all I can and, and do. But he goes and asks God, and God says, well, no, you can't go. And then they send another emissary group. You need to get Balaam to come and do a, and he says, well, I, I can only do what the Lord says. And he asks the Lord again, and the Lord says, fine, you can go. And then the Lord tries to kill him because he goes, right? You guys remember the story? He's on a donkey, Balaam is, and an angel of the Lord is standing before him, and the angel is seen by the donkey, but not by Balaam, which tells you who's smarter. But anyway, Balaam is, 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 is crushed against the wall because the donkey's trying to get away from this angel who wants to kill him. Um, and then his eyes are open and he sees because he struck the donkey three times and the donkey spoke to him, as donkeys do. <laughs> And then he's, he saw and he realized the donkey saved his life because the angel of the Lord would have killed him. Now, at first you're like, well, why? He was, he was begging the Lord to go because he wanted the money. But then he goes and four times over those chapters when you read them, read them on your own, Numbers 22 to 24, four times he gives a, a sort of an oracle over the children of Israel. And every time it's a blessing, it's not a curse, right? The king is angry. He says, I, I, I paid you to give a, a, a curse and you've given a blessing. And he tries them again, he tries them again. So four times that that happens. So when you get to the end, you kind of think, well, you know, he's a pretty good guy. So why is Jude bringing him up? They've, they've run greedily in the error of Balaam. This is the part I want to bring your attention to. If you're looking at it, Numbers 24 ends with, so Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Then look at the very next verse in chapter 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Very next verse, all of a sudden, all right, the men of Israel are committing harlotry with the women of Moab. And it's pretty severe because it brings a plague upon the children of Israel. God is punishing them. And you kind of go, well, what is, what is going on here? Well, Numbers 31, I have the verse for you, tells us what's going on. Verse 16. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. You get to the end of the whole thing, and you find out that Balaam actually had a hand in this. In fact, Revelation 2.14, it's a letter to the church of Pergamos, gives us a little bit further insight. It says this, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Listen, Balaam was brilliant. He's super smart. He could not give a prophecy against the Lord. He knew the character of that God. He understood Israel's God to that point. I can't speak anything against that God. But he also knew the character of God in this. But if you incite the people to go to commit sexual immorality, God himself will judge the people. He will punish them. And that's exactly what happens. They are consumed by a plague, and God is punishing his very own people because they have sinned. Brilliant, isn't he? He's a smart prophet for hire. He was in it for the money, he was in it for the prestige, and he is a prime illustration of an apostate, a false teacher, and one who runs. Uh, in the error of that way, because ultimately it's about the prophet. He instructed Balak to go and convince them to commit harlotry, and God judged them. There's one other example given here. It's this, they perished in the rebellion of Korah. So you have, they've gone the way of Cain, 
They've run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, that story is found in Numbers 16. So if you want to turn to Numbers 16, I know we're going back to the Old Testament quite a bit, but that's because Jude does. <laughs> now, this is, Korah is Moses' cousin. Uh, he's a Levite. Um, he's really become quite irritated because he wasn't chosen to be a priest, really, is what it comes down to. He's, he's not the leader he was hoping he would be. Um, and so this happens in, in Numbers um, 16, kind of leads a, a people out to really rebel against uh, Moses and the leadership. Look at verse 3. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You see what he's doing? All right, he brings a bunch of people out. He says, you know, you're kind of exalting yourself. But look, we're all holy. All of us are holy. We're all part of this. We all should have an equal say. What are they doing here? They're rejecting the authority given to Moses by God, right? It's a rebellion. And so he's inciting them to rebel in number. And this is the progression I want you to see. You see Cain is just one man, and it progressed into a sin of murder. But then you see um, with Balaam, right, that progressed into actually many thousands being killed and led astray because they were committing uh, adultery. And now you have here, Korah is inciting an entire uh, rebellion. In fact, we're told there's 250 uh, people that are gathered here together, but there will be more that will be um, destroyed because ultimately they're, they're separated. Moses tells them to separate. And look what he says here in verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? So that's what their <laughs> indictment is. Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. Have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each, of his, each take his censer, put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. And so everyone took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. So they're all there. They're all gathered together. They're all there to speak against uh, him and, to, and Moses. And now here's what Moses says at the very, very end of verse 28. By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I've not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. And that's quite a high thing, right? right? If they just die normally, you know I've not been sent for the Lord. But if the earth opens up its mouth and everything they have and all of them go alive into the pit, then you're going to know that's a pretty bold thing. Look at verse 31. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them, the earth opens its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Now Korah's influence did not stop there. 
the very next day, the congregation complained against Moses and uh, against Aaron, and God killed another 14,700 in a plague. Do you see the problem here? Like the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching and the doctrine and the influence of apostates has the ability to sway many, and it's very destructive in the church. And all we have to do today is to look around and see that that is the case. How many flying under the, the banner of Christianity, right, preach a different Jesus, preach a different salvation, preach not even needing the cross even, right? These are apostates, and they're amongst us. But the end, they will perish, and that is the point here. These three examples that we've seen here, really like the three examples in verses 5, 6, and 7, are examples that God always deals with apostates. What does the church do? The church needs to be on guard for the truth. That's the whole point of this, right? We must contend for the faith. My job is just to point these kinds of things out because these errors do slip in because sometimes we just adopt them in our Christian thinking or the way we, we speak, maybe not even knowing what we're saying, just like those guys, right? They don't even know what they're talking about, but it sounds pretty good, right? If I told you today I have a special sort of realm of a, a vision that I've been given and I have you know, the uh, audience of certain angels, um, it would be pretty fantastic I could see how that could just wow people, but I would hope that you would quickly slap me in the face and say, no, you haven't. You're okay to do that. You're okay to say, no, you haven't. You don't have to tiptoe and go, well, oh, let's just look at this. Uh, talk. No, that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. They're dreamers, and they exercise a power that they don't actually have. There's no humility there. Instead, we say, no, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord is the one that has that power, right? And we give it to him. Next week, we're going to continue on looking at the description of these apostates, and then we'll finish this the following week and get back to our study of John. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the clarity that your word brings. These things are so clear once we look at them and unpack them. It's so clear that... um, Lord, these types of people have infiltrated uh, Christianity today and that they are wielding a destructive power. And I pray for the true church today that you would protect them. Lord, I pray for our church here, Lord, that they would have wisdom and discernment to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. They would know what is truth and not be led astray. Oh, God, protect your people. There is deception out there. There is a battle, and you have called us to contend, to struggle against it. We will not allow untruth to come into our midst. Help us to stick to what is truth, um, no matter what it costs us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.